Hello everyone, it's Peter here. It's been a very busy and a really enjoyable year for us at Travels Through Time. We started off way back in January in 16th century Paris with Kate Moss and we ended up just the other day in Roman Britain with Tom Chivers. In between, we passed through just about everywhere imaginable, from Burma to the Caribbean. As it's the season for gatherings, we thought we'd round off this year with a little gathering of our own. So, the other day, I caught up with my friends Violet and Artemis to discuss some of our favourite episodes of 2021. Nothing more for me to add now, but I do want to say thank you to the brilliant UnseenHistories.com for supporting us over the past year, to all the superb authors for coming on and telling us about their stories, and I want to say thank you, most of all, to you for listening along with us over the past year. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas, indeed. So here we are, it's um, almost Christmas time and I'm sitting next to quite a like kind of little bit of a busy road in London so hopefully it won't be too intrusive. But the best thing is, before me I can see Artemis and Violet in their own little recording studios. Merry Christmas to you both. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. So yeah, this is our opportunity to reflect a little bit on what 2021 has been like um, for us in all of these different podcast episodes that we um, that we've done, and Violet, you've done so many episodes, and Artemis, you're doing um, a lot too. What's twenty twenty one been like for you so far, Violet? I'm going to ask you first. Um, well, I think it's been great to be able to continue doing the podcast and really getting into the swing of using the technology, which obviously doesn't always work, but. Um, that's been a really positive thing for me. I think when, you know, the times when we've been locked down and unable to really go anywhere or interact with other people apart from our family, it's been a huge bonus to be able to um, talk to all these fascinating writers about their books. Mm-hmm. Artemis? Yeah, I completely agree with Violet. It's like, um, I mean, I guess we're going to talk about it a bit when we talk about our favourite books from the year, but I was thinking about how there are some books that I read this year for the podcast where they genuinely did really take me out of my immediate situation, which was sometimes, you know, especially in that lockdown that we had uh, at the beginning of the year, in like kind of January, February time, uh, really took me out of myself and was like an escape, which I really loved. So, yeah. I think that's one of the really valuable things of history, though, isn't it? Is that it takes you, you know, it's it does not only takes you to another place, but also to another time, and and that can just be such a a wonderful experience. And I I don't know if you have this um, sensation, but I do. When you, um, uh, I don't know, you you do all these episodes, you talk to all these really interesting historians, and then you kind of move on, and then there'll be maybe an occasion to think about one of the episodes or one of the scenes in particular that we, we've talked about. And, and in a strange way, it does feel like you've been there, doesn't it? Because you've engaged intellectually with that moment. Of course, you haven't been there physically, but um, I don't know. People talk to me about the, the Battle of uh, Waterloo or something like that. I kind of think of that moment when um, Bernard Cornwell was telling me about leaning against a particular tree and watching the formations gather and things like that but in many many different instances is that something that you feel as well yeah it happened for me with um the gary shaw episode about ancient egypt which i really really enjoyed he was so engaging and i know nothing about ancient egypt i don't think i've ever studied it um it's just not sort of part of my 
um, world, as it were. But um, as PC, you'll know with uh, with your kids, except your 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 sons only just started school. But every year, my three children have studied the ancient Egyptians. They've gone through it one by one, and this year it was my youngest child's. Um, and I've never been able to support them. I mean, they have to, you know, I have to make those sort of necklaces with pasta when they do the dressing up day. But anyway, during a half term, uh, we went to Oxford and we went to the Ashmolean and to, yeah, because I wanted to show her um, the, the um, they have an amazing ancient Egyptian collection. And for the first time ever, thanks to Gary Shaw, I was able to actually speak, <laughs> um, you know, with some knowledge. And, and I recognised a lot of the things that were there from the episode that we, we'd done together and all the things that he told me and what I'd got from reading his book. So that was such a um, positive, wonderful experience for me. I'm not sure how much my daughter enjoyed it, but um, but no, that was really great. Mm. How about you, Artemis? Yeah, I think I was... Um, I feel like if there was a moment or a place um, that I feel like I have actually literally travelled to this year, it would be... France during the Second World War because I've, I've about I think three of the books that I did for the podcast this year were based in and around Paris um, during the Second World War and often about these really amazing women um, spies and um, journalists and um, and I, I felt like the description in um, and like resistance fighters that was the other one as well resistance fighters spies and journalists um, all women and I felt like the description of Paris in all of those books was so kind of it really I really feel like I like you say I feel like I know what it would be like to be in Paris during the occupation which is obviously a ridiculous thing to say but um yeah that's probably the place that I feel like I've visited the most hmm. yeah it's it's interesting to to think back in this way with what we what I thought would be good and we talked about before we started recording was um really if we could you know kind of go back to some specific episodes and more than that um because each episode really is centered on on a book isn't it and what we what we do is we get the the author of the book to um to take us back to the moments within it but um as a byproduct of recording all these episodes we read a lot of books so i thought it'd be a good opportunity for us just to um to talk about our favorite books that we've read during um the course of the research so where shall we start with this? I think we're going to do a couple each and um, it'll also be a good opportunity for us afterwards to link to the specific episodes on the website. So if you are, uh, I mean, if you haven't listened to these episodes about these books, there's somewhere we can send you directly afterwards. You've done loads this year, Violet, and you've got a rich selection. I'm quite intrigued to see which of them all kind of linger in your mind most. Um. Well, I have to say my number one um, episode was definitely uh, Philip Hall talking about the artist Albrecht Dürer um, uh, and his book, which is called Albert and the Whale. Um, I've always, well, I've, I've been obsessed with Dürer for a long time. He's just such an extraordinary figure in the history of art. And I love his um, pictures, um he's just a very compelling person and the way that this book was written was is so unusual it's really I think in the episode we talked about how someone had described it as a dream and and it is a bit like that I mean it, it probably wouldn't be for everyone because it's very untraditional it's not written like um, a normal history book at all um, but I loved it and it was really unusual and I think um, 
as a historian, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think it's really important to find new ways of telling um, stories and new ways of presenting history. And Philip Hall really did succeed in doing that because he looks at Jura and he looks at these specific events in his life, but then he also looks at the reception of Jura by different other different artistic figures through history up to the present day, um, which I thought was a really interesting way of um, of doing it, looking at, you know, Jura within his own lifetime and then Jura, what he means, has meant to people in the succeeding centuries. Um, and it was just, it's just so beautifully written. He, he's a professor of creative writing. So obviously he has these two... Um, and he's he's a it just seemed a really really interesting person. He's also um, quite um, obsessed with the sea, and he he yeah he's he's unusual. Um, he was an unusual interviewee and just very passionate and articulate. Can I ask you because um, you said you you've been obsessed by Drura for years. Why? What what was it that made him so interesting to you in the first place, long before Philip Hall came along, for example? What did, what did you like about him? Well, I think at first, sort of almost as a child, I was really attracted to his pictures, uh, his, his picture of the hair, which is very famous, um, just because, you know, I mean, in quite a lame way, I loved animals when I was younger, and they were really... They are so lifelike um, and beautiful. And, and obviously his rhinoceros, which is not that lifelike. And then I found out more about him. Um, and, you know, he, he plays quite an important role in the sort of technology of art, the development of technology in art, because he was the first artist to produce his work, uh, mass produce his work and sell, um, you know, um, woodcuts. And he, he was very much... Um, in that first generation of sort of printing and th there was so much happening in that period I'm, I, 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 I think that um, you know the period that he was alive is, is really interesting but then anyway. there's, there's something else that's really interesting about that time uh, the, the story sorry um, for me which is when we think about the renaissance your mind always kind of flies away to Florence and um, and and in a way, he encapsulates this northern part of the Renaissance, which is a bit kind of, I don't know, it just feels like it's got a different tone. We also talked to Susan Denham Wade about the Gutenberg Press, which is kind of a similar area in Germany. I had never really thought much about the northern Renaissance until then, really. So it was a good opportunity um, to, I suppose, challenge my own preconceptions. Yeah, and I think what Philip Hall was saying about this sort of quite specific feeling of Germanness or northernness that that um, was very much evident in Dürer's art, um, <clears throat> and yeah, as you say, it's a nice counterpoint to all those um, beautiful angelic um, paintings by Raphael and the you know the Italian Renaissance style. So, um, and just on on the writing style that he uses, would you say it's like a stream of consciousness piece? It just kind of flows along without much regard for, say, dates and things like this. So you can occasionally be in the eighteenth century and then you're back somewhere else. Yeah, he jumps around quite a lot, but in in a in a very um, you know sort of beautiful way, I thought. And I just think it's an interesting way of writing history is it's it's good to do try and do things differently and not always stick to the very traditional way of communicating i think mm. how about you artemis my favorite books from this year 
Yeah. I, do you want to tell us which ones um, have stayed with you the longest? Yeah. So my my first choice that I wanted to talk about was the first book that I did this year, which was Kate Moss's City of Tears, which is historical fiction. It's the second in a series that she's written. And it's set in the 16th, late 16th century. And the particular year that she wanted to visit was 1572, which is the year of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And the book is essentially centred around this kind of idea that she had about a family, um, a Huguenot and Catholic uh, mixed family, goes to Paris for the wedding of a Catholic princess and a Protestant prince to kind of hopefully end the wars of religion. And all of France arrived to this wedding. And this terrible, terrible massacre takes place where Huguenots are slaughtered by Catholics. And in the book, the family uh, are split apart and don't see each other for many years after that. And it's very traumatic. Um, Mothers are separated from tiny children and that kind of thing. And um, it was a really it's a really compelling idea. Like it really took me to it really took me into that kind of emotional side of, of history. Like it's so easy, especially with something that's quite a long time ago, like the 16th century, to really take you into what it might have felt like to be a mother. Uh, in that environment or in that period and it was just um yeah it was totally compelling it was an amazing book it's brilliantly written it was like total page turner basically and um I loved it and the second one that I loved was Blood Legacy by Alex Renton which is a book about his family's history of slavery basically his his distant relatives were slave owners and were heavily involved in slave owning in Tobago and Jamaica And he's done this extraordinary research into his family archives where he's gone through letters exchanged between his, I think it's his five times removed great uncle, five five times great uncle and five times great uh, grandfather and discussing the plantation and discussing everything that's, that's happening there. And it's really kind of thoughtful and it's really something he said to me in the interview which I really stayed with me and is one of the reasons it's my favourite book one of my favourite books I did this year was that he said that when he was reading these letters written by his uh, great uncle who was running a a plantation in Tobago he couldn't help but notice that he kind of recognised this person they felt real they felt like a person that you might meet you might have dinner with they had insecurities they made jokes they were they weren't a kind of horrifying monster and he felt like that was more important to be able to recognise that than just to say these people were total monsters. Obviously, what they were doing was monstrous, but he felt like it was important to recognise that perhaps he himself, were he in that time, in that situation, in that family, it was an opportunity to make money. He might have done the same thing. Um, and that that felt like an important realisation to have about the period rather than just saying, well, of course, we nowadays we would never, ever, ever do that. Um so it was a really thought-provoking book and I think one of my favourite episodes to do. Did um, Because this obviously dovetails with some um, real political cultural interest at the moment, did he, did he have any, I suppose, practical conclusions with how... Because it's kind of like a reckoning, isn't it, the book? Um, and this is something that we all probably think about quite a lot, is how much... Um, I suppose, like, how how can we be implicated in the crimes of the past? You know, if even if it's like a blood relative, that's the, because the thing that um, I ponder often is 
this um this idea of inherited guilt um did he have anything to say about that or is there anything that you took away from um, from talking to him that that you think i mean because obviously there's some practical steps that people suggest about making payments of reparation um does he have anything to say on this yeah in the book he does um go to modern day tobago and jamaica and um, visits the places where his uh, distant relatives would have um, owned and ran plantations. Um, And he does discuss reparations, which I believe he is in favour of. But his main argument that he makes, and that he certainly made when I spoke to him, is that he thinks there's an extraordinary amount of kind of general amnesia amongst um, British people about our role in slavery. Maybe not to us here or to listeners of the podcast who are Um, quite clued up about history but kind of to the general population um, we often I know certainly when I was taught about slavery at school the emphasis was very much on the fact that we abolished it um, before the Americans did Um, and actually so much of the wealth that Britain was that accumulated at that time and and built on and so much of like the buildings that you see in London and everything are funded directly by the money made from slave trading and plantations in the West Indies. And I think he he makes the argument that the very first step is to just, just to acknowledge it and just to know it and just to be honest about, honest about our history rather than, um, I mean, rather than pretending that we were actually kind of good guys. And it doesn't need to be that black and white. It doesn't need to be we were terrible, monstrous people and we still are now or we were actually kind of the good guys and was an empire kind of a good thing in lots of ways. Um, it's just being honest about the role that we played and the money that was made off of it. And the fact that there are lots of people in Britain today um, and in Scotland, because his family is Scottish, um, who fam- whose families are kind of um, have this residual wealth and power and status um, as a result of the money that was made at that time. So... Yeah, I think it's really just about being honest. And that's what the National Trust did recently, didn't they? They produced a report where they sort of assessed exactly how many of their properties were connected with slavery and in what way, which I thought was quite an interesting, just a sort of reckoning. And as you say, just, you know, just being transparent about it and acknowledging it. I mean, we can't change the past, but we can acknowledge the reality of it, I think. Mm. Mm. Peter, what about you? What were your favourite books this from this year? I, well, I'll say it very, very quickly. I enormously, enormously enjoyed the book called China, which is by an, an author called Edward Rutherford. And the episode with him was so much fun because, um, and this is in a purely poor podcasting kind of uh, sense, he, he did something that n- really none of our other guests had tried to do. He became an active participant in the drama that he was telling. He said, I wanted to be here, and then I would give the letter to this person, and then the sequence of events would, um, would ensue. And um, he, yeah, he had a really playful sense of humour. Brilliant writer. He's very, very popular. Writes these enormous books on um, places like Paris or Dublin or, in, in this case, um, in China. So have I used one up already? Maybe I have. I don't know. But anyway, the one I, I brought it here. It's called um, Surviving Katyn, which um, is, a, is a kind of gloomy book about a terrible massacre. But I just loved the sense of... Um, of the historian as a detective that you got out of it. So the author is called um, Jane Rogoiska and she um, 
really went back to investigate the um, surviving details about this very curious story from the Second World War. After the invasion of Poland, a large number of Poles went missing, vanished. And um, it was quite clear that they'd kind of gone into the Soviet Union, but what became of them thereafter was really um, contested. So the book follows the very few survivors of this large number of Poles who were taken prisoner. And um, I just love this. This is kind of a personal thing, but I, I imagine it's something that others will identify to. When you get an author who's engaged deeply with a subject and they have a kind of quest behind the narrative, they want to find out the truth. There's this amazing variety of sources, often contradictory sources but there's the skill of the researcher and then what um what's also in this book is um a great deal of skillful writing as well and some wonderful characters come out because it is you know it's a story which is which is sad but um there are there's some really winning personalities within it so um it wasn't just members of the military that were taken prisoner by the Soviets. This was basically a broad section of the elite, the doctors, the university professors, the dentists, the architects. They were all taken away and um, and they had to live in, in like kind of very close proximity in these camps run by... Um, you know the kind of Soviet internal interior ministry under very strange circumstances and um, so there was a sense of peril there was a sense of um, hope I suppose in the book and um, more than anything I picked it because um, I just thought it was a, a, a kind of gripping reconstruction of something which you know, like I'm not a Second World War historian, but I do know everyone kind of by osmosis kind of imbibes the Second World War in the UK. We're kind of spoon fed it, especially the, you know, the early part, 1940 Battle of Britain, Churchill, the moment when we stood alone, Dunkirk. And more than that, many of our families have strong connections to the war. So it's something that we do know about, but I didn't know anything about this. And it's nice, I'd always say to um to come across something which teaches you something new about something um, that you've known about for a long time. So that would be my first one. So Surviving Katyn by Jane Rogoiska. And she, uh, in that episode, talks about the year 1940. Do you want to ask me any questions about it? Uh, no, I think what you're saying is all really interesting. I'm happy to just... You're, yeah. What did, what did she talk about in the interview? Well, she talked about the methods of interrogation that were employed, very sinister ones. Is it the NKVD? I'm trying to remember the acronym for the Soviets. Uh, they had the, it's kind of big time for acronyms. And um, yeah, they, they uh, ran these camps with a lot of subterfuge and intimidation. So she talked all about that. And um, of course, she took us to the uh, the solution of the mystery. So yeah, I think it's a satisfying episode because there's there's so much in it. And of course... This relationship between Poland and Russia still continues to be very strained today. So um, really has loads of contemporary relevance. And then the other one of mine, I know you've got one left as well, Violet, so I'll, um, I won't, won't forget you. But um, it's this one, which happened, well, which came out, which was recorded know, a few weeks ago. And it's, um, it's called The Ruin of All Witches by um, Malcolm Gaskill. So... It's a micro history, 
and it's um, and I've written a micro history before. They're tremendously fun to do because you um, instead of having to describe everything, you just like kind of focus in on a very narrow story and a very like kind of small number of characters. And he does this with like kind of great flair. And again, it's the same sense of a detective at work. And um, behind it all is this idea of witchcraft. And um, the, the thing that I took away from that book is that witchcraft, which we're all led to believe is the most um, irrational thing in the world, actually arises out of a rational set of circumstances. Like it, because Malcolm Gaskell described himself as a historian of the emotions. And he went back to a very emotional time in English history, which was the end of the Civil War in um, 1649 and the execution of Charles I. And he, he describes this, this moment when the king had his head chopped off and there was a great groan came out of the crowd, which is one of those details which lingers in your mind. And I just think um, that kind of sense of foreboding really runs through the whole story he's a really 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 good writer and um and the ruin of all which is is also a story which spans two countries um it goes over to new england and this very frontiery kind of town called springfield in new england it's really good so i'd recommend that and um those are my choices anyway so yeah i I find I'm absolutely desperate to read that book. It's on my Christmas reading list. Um, I find like the history of magic and witchcraft in that period. It was one. It was literally the first thing that I studied at university. My very first history seminar was. Um, uh, it was a module that was all centered around um, Keith Thomas's religion and the decline of magic. That's my favorite <laughs> history book of all time, pretty much. Why favorite history book of all time? Tell tell me about it. Um, it's just such a fascinating study of a subject which is quite uh under the radar I mean it, you know it's it's much more popular now but it's one of those I think when you go through school the history that you learn is generally politics war it's all the blokey stuff uh and then when I was studying history at uni and I I discovered that book and I you start to get the opportunity to discover to study you know, cultural things and ideas and um, and things like magic and witchcraft, which are much more embedded in normal society, I suppose, rather than the list of, you know, which king won which battle and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and that's the kind of history that I like. So, yeah, it's just a really important book for me. Yeah. And if nothing else, it's just full of all of these, like, like literally packed, packed, packed with endless really intriguing examples of like weird stuff that was happening you know weird things that people did shrines that they made um spells that they cast um like ghosts that they believed in it's just i mean yeah i I remember my tutor telling me that the way that he keith thomas researched it is he was just he would go to the archives and he'd go to the library and every time he came across something like that he'd write it down on a slip of paper and then he had all of these envelopes called like witches um spells <laughs> um you know that kind of thing and he'd just like pack all of these envelopes with these examples and then when it came to write the book he just like threw them all onto the table and it really does have that feel to it but but I love what you say about Malcolm Gaskell saying that he's a historian of emotion because I think maybe that's what you're describing Violet when you say why it was so refreshing to come across religion and the decline of magic at university after having done 
political a lot of political history at school which does feel quite um I don't want to say dry in the sense that it's boring because obviously political history can be fascinating, but it is quite like straight. It can feel quite separate from emotion, but actually nothing about human history is separate from emotion. You know, it's all completely driven by um, human motivation is completely driven by fear and love and, you know, all of these things. So I I love that he describes himself in that way. Mm, It's definitely something that colours... all events isn't it the the prevailing emotional mood and you do wonder if something like because at the moment to be fair i said london's a very tense place at the moment yet again we seem to be on phase five of coronavirus and the latest thing is omicron and you you know we think about these things through these um you know kind of greek names that the medics give them but had this happened a thousand years ago i, I imagine there would be a similarity to the mood or even though people would have constructed what was happening in a very different way and um yeah i, I suppose it makes a book reading a book like malcolm gaskell's the ruin of all witches um at Christmas 2021, <laughs> and everyone's doing lateral flow tests all the time, is there's a kind of coming together. And I think that's something that we can't, you can never plan for as a writer. You can't say, oh, well, I'm going to write a book which is about a, a nervous um, country and um, I suppose a sense of foreboding and coming destruction or something like this. But um, because you'd miss it, wouldn't you? But sometimes you do get the book which comes out that matches the mood and it, and it, and it makes the reading experience all the, all, the, all the richer. So anyway, those are my two choices. I know you've got one left to do, Violet, because you started us off with Philip Hoare a bit ago and um, you're going to finish us off with what? So my uh, second choice is um, Alexandria, The Quest for the Lost City by Edmund Richardson. And I think um, you and I both have to come clean here um, and admit to our listeners that when you saw Alexandria, you thought, oh, that's definitely one for Violet and handed it over to me. And I saw Alexandria and thought, oh, yes, great. How interesting. And, you know, launched into setting up the interview. And then, of course, when the book arrived and I actually read it, I realised it's um, set in the 19th century, which is very, very much not what I'm normally interested in. But that, in a way, was part of the joy for me, for, um, was because it was, you know, it was set in Afghanistan in the 19th century, and I know nothing about that at all. So it was a real, um, as I said in the podcast, it was a real adventure. And Edmund Richardson was just a joy to interview he was so incredibly passionate and good at telling the story and setting the scene and really taking taking you to Kabul in the um the 1830s um uh, I really I really enjoyed it um and his whole thing is he's interested in these <clears throat> intersections between the ancient world and then later periods and the sort of reception of the ancient world in later periods and I find that to go back actually to the um the Jura book it's sort of similar um slightly similar idea um so I loved that I I would highly recommend it it's the most amazing story of this man who was a soldier in the East India Company and he deserted which was a crime that you know I mean if he'd been caught he would have been shot immediately um but he wasn't caught and he escaped and had 
years of traveling sort of incognito across the deserts of northern India and um, and Afghanistan. Um, and yeah, it's just a magical story. Um, I'm not going to um, spoil it for anyone who wants to read it. But it, yeah, it was it was a great episode. And talking of uh, well, just say this very quickly, what is on my mind, talking of historical timing, it kind of came out, didn't it, a few months before the fall of um, Afghanistan in the summer this year. And I remember one thing, so I listened to that, I thought he had a really um, kind of great delivery as well. He had a very soothing voice, Edmund Richardson. So if for nothing else, you should go and listen to his voice, which is um, kind of gentle, where he's describing this quite um, boisterous uh, history. But but he said that, that there was a, a kind of a bit of instruction also in Massam's story in the sense that he went to Afghanistan and he listened to the people. He didn't go in with this kind of instinct that he was going to govern them. And how interesting a like kind of message is that when you then look at um, what happened in the summer, where yet again, it's very easy to go into Afghanistan. The problem is getting out of the place and it's cost a tremendous amount of money. And in a way, he kind of realised what the great nation states of the 21st century has, have not, that you kind of have to come to an accord with the people. So I think that's a really interesting point. That does happen quite often with, you know, the books that you read about history, that there is this sort of, and obviously with Afghanistan and that episode, there is a direct correlation between what was happening, what the East India Company was doing in that part of the world in the 19th century and what what is happening now and has happened since. But you also get sort of even, you know, longer term reflections i know that when i interviewed helen carr and she was talking about the peasants revolt and um that was the week i think that the government were debating this new um i can't remember what the what the bill's called but it's basically going to limit the right to protest mm. um and that felt quite um you know timely <laughs> mm. um and poignant at the same time did you find reading the book added anything to your understanding of the period of Alexandria that you're really familiar with? Did you feel like you could kind of use what happened to retroact, like to look back and see how, sometimes I find that like, even if I, even if I find out about history that's like hundreds of years apart, that I don't want to draw too many kind of like general conclusions, like that there's a line running through all of it, but sometimes I feel like it, it starts to make sense to me or the place starts to kind of come together to me and what's happened in that particular place and why over hundreds of years. I just was thinking like, well, you you were both discussing how reading books about the past can really make us think so much about the present or even the future, but I wanted to know whether it also kind of changed anything that you thought about Alexandria in the past before the 19th century. Um, no, not really. I don't think in that in that case, because, of course, the, this is a different Alexandria. Um, I mean, it's still founded by Alexander the Great, um, but there wasn't that much in it that actually it, it, it was more about the quest for this city, which had been lost in time. And, you know, there were these old stories told around the campfires about this city, which Alexander the Great had apparently founded. So um, I know exactly what you're saying, and I think that's definitely true sometimes, but um, not so much in this case, um, actually. 
Well, we've got our half dozen books and um, a few of us that got honourable mentions as well. But I don't know, so many, so many interesting episodes. And um, where should we take this to now? I think there's a there's an opportunity probably just to to talk a bit about us for a moment. Artemis, what are you up to this year? Because you're presenting a few more episodes. Um, but you, Travels Through Time isn't the only podcast that you're working on, is it? Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you're up to at the moment? No, so um, I finished my MA in broadcast journalism in the summer of 2021. And since then, I've been working basically sort of in podcasting. Uh, Travels Through Time has 100% inspired my entire <laughs> career path. Um, so I obviously present on Travels Through Time, but then there are a few other podcasts that I produce. Um, one of them is called Always Take Notes, which is a podcast for and about um, writers and writing. And they interview anybody involved in the writing world, you know, publishers, novelists, poets, journalists, uh, literary agents, anybody, and um, ask really interesting questions, kind of very technical questions about their careers. So really highly recommend that to anybody listening who's interested in writing. And I hear they uh, they ask lots of indiscreet questions about how much writers earn. Is that correct? They do. They always they have a rule on the podcast that they always ask about money uh, and how people make how people make a living out of their their careers. Um, and it's always it always produces really fascinating answers. I think that it's good to be really transparent about that. Especially, I think it's especially fascinating for people who are you know, maybe not like the, the publishers and the literary agents who and journalists where you can kind of, you have an idea about how it happens. But for things like, they ask questions like, how do you write a book proposal? How did that go? What was that process like? You know, what? how did you get an agent? Like literally all of the steps that take you to the point where you're writing a book and making money off of it. Um, the, what advance did you get? You know, all of those kind of questions. So yeah, they are very indiscreet. <laughs> um and then the other podcast that I work on is called The Better Travel Podcast, which is hosted by Paige McClanahan. She writes about travel for the New York Times, and she basically is interested in all issues relating to this kind of ethical and sustainable travel issues. So we've spoken a lot about climate change. We've spoken about volunteerism. We've spoken about how to get the most from a place when you visit it, rather than like feeding in too much to the kind of cliched um, cliched view of it we've spoken about issues in the hospitality industry we've covered a lot of ground in a lot of different places and um, we just only had our first season in the last couple of months so that's very new um, and when I'm not doing that I'm working at Soho Radio Podcast Studios as an engineer so if anyone listening has a podcast and they're based in London and they want excellent quality uh, podcast recording then come to Soho Radio and I'll engineer it for you <laughs> Oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. It could probably be a Christmas present for someone, maybe. Yeah. An hour with Artemis <laughs> Soho Radio. <laughs> okay. How about you, Violet? What are you up to at the moment? Is there anything you'd like to tell us? Uh, yeah, I am um, writing, uh, well, researching uh, a new book, which is about um, the history of science, again. Um, this time I'm fo focusing on the... Um, latter half of the 16th century and I, I want to look at the places where people carried out scientific investigation because in that period there weren't any official institutes or 
centers really uh, yet um so you you get you know people doing it in in their kitchens you know alchemists sort of um in their in their kitchens and then um people like john d who um was in elizabethan london and who had this incredible library um and sort of center of knowledge in his house and people would come and visit from all, all over um europe actually um and and then other people um they had observatories and um centers of learning at their courts if the ruler happened to be interested in that kind of thing so i'm also um looking at rudolf ii's prague which was a great center of the occult actually um magic and um alchemy and astronomy and astrology um so yeah and then a few other places also somewhere in denmark which is um hopefully going to be nice because my husband's danish and we spend um quite a lot of time there when we're allowed by covid so um i'm going to write about um tycho brahe who had this island from the danish king gave him an island um in the straits outside um copenhagen and um he built this amazing palace which was also an observatory um and um so he's a major going to be a major figure in in my book but the, you you say this is late 16th century this is pre scientific revolution time this is when people still believed that the sun went round the earth etc um what kind of science were they up to back then was it was it anything that we'd understand as science or was it much more broader than that i'm trying to think of the right terms to describe <laughs> you know i mean copernicus had um pu- pu- published his theory of the heliocentric universe in 1543 and so that was slowly being absorbed and accepted by various different astronomers around europe and um i don't um agree with this whole idea that we had this moment of sudden enlightenment and this revolution in science where suddenly everything was oh you know we were suddenly discovering everything that was right and that put us on the path to our modern world you know everything that happened in science right back into the ancient world contributed in some way whether negative or positive um so and i think that this period is so interesting because it was the last moment it was you know just before bacon just before descartes came in and kind of you know put this um <clears throat> more recognizable system of mechanization and um, mathematics and it was this last great moment when anything was possible and you had people like john d who was you know a well um recognized mathematician you know a really intelligent man who worked for elizabeth the 1st and did all sorts of things which we would now recognize as science with a capital s but he also believed that he could commune with angels and that was how he was going to access higher knowledge and i think that sort of dichotomy is is just is so fascinating and i think getting into that mindset and kind of letting go of this idea of um you know what we know today is is completely right and we, i i i think that that's really interesting um kind of getting behind that mm. Yeah, it sounds absolutely fascinating, Violet. I can't wait to can't wait to read it. Peter, what are you up to? So I've got um, I'm coming towards the end of a very big writing project, which should, all things being well, um, end in the first draft end in the first draft of a new book in about the end of May. So 
I'm writing a book called Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness, which a lot of you will, um, who are listening will probably immediately recognise as a very famous line from the Declaration of Independence. And um, that being, I suppose, the most important document of the 18th century in a way, um, it's quite a line. But I've used it as a storytelling device to try and get into a mid-18th century um, book of ideas, really. Um, to see how these different approaches to society were being made. And whereas um, the, the American Revolution isn't studied at all in Britain for kind of obvious reasons, um, I think there is actually a really, really good British story attached to it, which has been overlooked um, to some extent in recent years, although... Um, in earlier times, it was very, very well known. So I'm going back to, it, yeah, it's a kind of British prehistory of the American Revolution. It's 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 a big, boisterous, and I, I hope it'll be quite a beautiful book by the time it's finished. It's it's been tremendous fun to research because the characters, um, are just the most splendid characters you can imagine. People like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and John Wilkes and Catherine McCauley and Samuel Johnson. And they're all kind of people who both do a lot of, of stuff. They they give you a lot of descriptive material because they're always up to something. But they're, um, they're also quite keen thinkers as well. And they're beautiful writers for the, the, their prose styles. So um, completely daunting project that I very foolishly embarked on just after my son was born a few years ago and uh, goodness knows why I didn't do a Malcolm Gaskell-esque um, micro-history not that that's easy but at least it's focused this seems like it's uh, very um, sprawling but hopefully I'm trying to make sense of it and that's what's going to um, keep me busy probably might keep me away from um, too many episodes in the early part of next year but I will be around of course. And um, yeah, so that's that. Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And f- travels through time, of course. We're going to keep going. Um, we might have a week off for Christmas. We're not quite sure yet. Um, <laughs> you'll have to look at your feeds to see what's happening. But have you got any episodes ready, booked, that you want to share? I've got... Yes, I've, I'm very excited. I've actually got lots, which um, I'm booking in at the moment. And um, the... F- first one I that I've booked in I'm not sure if it will be the first one that comes out is called the Greeks I've got it right here it is a huge beautiful book by um, Roderick Beaton so I'm very excited about that um, and then I'm also going to interview hopefully Andrew Pettigree and Arthur De Wedouin, please excuse my pronunciation, um, who've written this book called The Library, A Fragile History. So that will be my first interview where I'm interviewing two people at the same time. And I'm very much looking forward to that because libraries have a very, very special place in my heart. Um, and then the other one I'm excited about, because um, I know nothing about the subject, is this book called Royals and Rebels, The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire, which is by Priya Atwal. Um, and it's a really beautiful book, and it's a whole nother area um, of history that I don't know anything about. So I'm going to take that um, with me and read it over Christmas. Hmm. 
How about you, Artemis? Well, I've only I need to I need to catch up with Violet because I've not got as many books in as that. I need to I need to start thinking about some. But I know one that I do have planned for the new year is with um, a woman called Lulu Jeremiah. She works in in theatre and she lives in Uganda. And she is going to come and do a episode about Ugandan history. We haven't decided on a particular um, year yet that she had lots of ideas of lots of fascinating moments of Ugandan history, Ugandan history that she could talk about. Um, so we're yet to choose just one. She's not got a book coming out. She's just a very interesting and knowledgeable person. So um, that's what I've got coming up in the new year. What are we hoping to do on, on, on the podcast over next year? Well, probably... More of the same, mostly, but um, maybe if people have enjoyed this live, live discussion today, we can try and do a few more live events, and that's something we can talk about um, as, as, as we go along, um, because it's quite enjoyable, isn't it, reflecting on books with people who've read them afterwards. What do you think? Yeah, I think it would be great to um, to do some live events. I really like that idea. Um, I thought a good way of finishing this off would be to ask you, as Christmas is pending, it should be coming around any day now, and we've been talking about Christmas and history, of course, so let's put the two together. If you could spend Christmas anywhere in any historical location and time, where would you like to go to? Um, I will probably start with Violet. Where would you like to go to um, for Christmas? Um, when you said you, you, you can go anywhere, my immediate thought was the Maldives, but then I now see that you mean um, any period in history. So I am going to say, I'm going to be very boring, I'm going to say I'd like to go back to the court of Elizabeth I and be involved in all the revels that went on around Christmas and New Year and watch perhaps uh, a performance of one of Shakespeare's plays. Um, that would be nice if that could be arranged. Um, like as Christmas well. Eve or something. Yeah, and maybe go wassailing. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not quite I don't sure. Know what that is. I think it's something. To, I think it's a bit like carol singing, but maybe with hot mulled cider involved. Yeah. I'm not sure. That's what I'm hoping for. Anyway, um, so I think I think that would be my choice. That's that's such a good one, Violet. I really feel like the Tudor court knew how to party. So of all the play, like that's such a great that's a great selection. Yeah, they would have been good. And you can imagine maybe John Dee bringing out the, the Christmas pudding or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, with um, a magic wand and setting it on a, a light. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then perhaps I could have gone yeah. back to his house for a chat and a look at his books and his showstone. <laughs> then that yeah, might you could have exchanged presents. Be the best Christmas the ever, ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, not to interrupt that, um, but we should. Um, Artemis, where... What about you? What would be good? Well, I think my selection has been is motivated more by a person spending Christmas with a person than in a particular place, and that is um, the war correspondent Virginia Coles, um, who was reporting from lots of different parts of Europe during the Second World War. And I read her memoir, um, "Looking for Trouble," for the podcast, and I just kind of fell in love a bit with her. She just sounded like so much fun, really clever um glamorous charming interesting woman and she was incredibly well connected and always seemed to be in the right place at the right time i wouldn't necessarily want to be with her you know in the trenches during the civil war in spain necessarily but i'd like to be with her 
when she returns to London um, at some quite glamorous Christmas party and she could tell me lots of amazing stories about what she'd been up to on the continent and maybe we could go Christmas shopping together because she's all she always wore like red lipstick and heels so I feel like she'd she'd be a great shopping partner and she could we could discuss like European politics and try on lipstick and that would be a really really fun Christmas. That sounds mm. great and I think also those moments in the war and that's certainly the impression you get isn't it is that the parties that happen in those kind of really high stress, um, you know, awful situations, they are the best um, parties because there's just this feeling of such sort of reckless joy. Yeah, and yeah, like you don't know if it it might be the last Christmas you ever have. (laughs) I mean, hopefully this isn't the last Christmas we ever have, but um, (laughs) I completely agree. Mm. Peter, how about you? Where are you going to spend Christmas? Well, yeah, just thinking on on um, the hoof, really. And um, the one that I think would be really interesting, because um, it gives me a chance to do a little bit of book publicity at the same time, is um, in 1769, Christmas Day, the 20, um, 25th of December, the Endeavour, which is the ship I wrote about, is the famous ship that Cook took around the world on his first expedition into the South Seas, which is how they described um, the Pacific back then. Um, they uh, they had a Christmas party off the coast of New Zealand. And um, I was just looking at that. I think I've got some. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a kind of David Attenborough-esque figure um, called Joseph Banks, who was um, a diary keeper who went on the Endeavour. And he went out in a boat around the ship and he shot some geese off New Zealand and they made these into a pie. And then they all gathered on Christmas Day and had lots to drink. And it's quite funny to look back through the diary because Banks's journal gets progressively shorter until on Boxing Day they've all got a hangover and he doesn't really say very much at all. So it's quite amusing. But I think what what attracts me, apart from the opportunity of going into a historical story I know really well, is that kind of slightly weird dynamic of something really familiar like Christmas being celebrated in somewhere absolutely unfamiliar to, you know, because they were about to have their first you know, kind of experience of the South Island of New Zealand, for example, and see that extraordinary landscape, which they all thought was very dreary and desolate and who would ever want to go there, which is is kind of shows how our way of looking at things changes over time. But but yeah, I think that'd be that'd be where I'd go. But I'd come back very quickly to um, to the modern world and modern medicine before um, before too long, I think, because I don't fancy, you know, getting ill on the ship or something um so that would be my choice and i think they're three quite good ones as well so uh, well there's not really much left for us to say is there but to um wish everyone who's listened to us this year and especially to those of you who are listening today a very merry christmas and we're going to keep going with our time travels i hope you stay along with us and thank you to both of you as well artemis and violet for your excellent work this year We'll um, see you again very soon. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.